Well, good morning. Good to see you today. Today I want to begin with a story. True story happened to me back, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. Back in my 20s when I was on staff down at Heartland Rockford, uh, a group of guys, probably five or six of us in our 20s, all started to get together to play competitive Monopoly. Uh, that's so random. And I recognize that. I have no idea how it got started. It was not my idea because it would not be my idea to play a board game. Um, uh, I've always been of the mentality that they named them board games because you are always bored when you try to do it. Um, but this is what happened. Somebody had the idea, we got invited, I got invited, so I started to go and play Monopoly. And when I started to play Monopoly, I was a complete rookie, complete noob. I had no idea how to even play the board game. When I was growing up, my parents didn't play board games. I didn't play board games. My friends didn't play board games. I would see them in the store, and I would think to myself, that must be what people buy little kids when they do not know what they like. And um, so when I started playing, I, I was completely green. The guys that I was playing with, however, were not especially two guys, Greg and Mike. These guys knew what they were doing, and inevitably, every single weekend when we would get together to play, actually, this was multiple times a week for a season, every single time we would play, one of them would eventually create a monopoly, crush me and the other people at the table, and become master of the board. Well, this went on all fall one year, and for the most part, I was okay with losing because I didn't know anything about the game. And I'm the type of person where as long as I tell myself that I should lose, I'm okay. It's like I'm not really trying. They know how to play, clearly. I don't. I'm not going to learn. And then this way, when I lose, I won't feel bad. They should beat me. If they don't beat me, it's kind of pathetic on them. So I was okay with not winning, right? My wife, however, is not the same personality as me. She loves board games. She loves to compete. And she loves to win. I think to myself sometimes that she must love to crush the spirits of our children and enjoys making them acknowledge mom has won again. And so my wife would watch me lose these games to these guys, and I think it must have frustrated her that I never got better. But she knew she couldn't just tell me, John, you got to try harder, you got to get better. She knew she couldn't do that. She had to be, you know, wise in how she got me to win. And so what she did was for Christmas that year, she got me my own Monopoly board. She got me the electronic version. And uh, then she also got me a book. She got me this book. It's a book of strategy on how to win the world's most popular board game. Now, many of you see that book and you think that looks awful. I love books like that. See, I don't like to read stories. Um, I like to read information. So I tore through this book and it, like, I, I loved it. And so, you know, I was committed now. Now that I knew the right strategy, it was like, I'm going to play to win. And it took a couple more games of getting beat, but eventually I kind of figured out how what I read in the book played out in the real world. And I started to, to put this together, you know, things like which properties to buy because they have the highest return on investment because mathematically it's been proven that their people are more likely to land on them. I learned about when to build and when to hold off on building, you know, the huge when it comes to Monopoly. And uh, then I invited the guys over to my house and they came over and I got out my board with the electronic credit cards and prices and modern day values, you know, park places like a million bucks. And, uh, and I, was, I was cutthroat. Like, it was like no holding back. You know, I'm in it to win it. I was, I was you know, conniving. I was, I was, you know, cunning. I was cutthroat, you might say. 
And everything was going well until Greg landed on one of my properties and started to argue that he didn't owe me rent because of a deal he had worked out with the previous owner. And I was like, no way, man. I don't care what deal you had with him. I own this property now. We don't have a deal, and you're going to pay rent. Well, he argued with me that he didn't need to pay rent. And as you might imagine, a bunch of guys in our 20s, this escalated a little bit. It escalated to the point where while he wouldn't pay me, I literally stood up and I pointed at my front door and I screamed, pay me my $2 million or get out of my house. (laughs) So Greg got up and he left. (laughs) And my wife, who was sitting at the kitchen island, looked at me and I think in that moment she regretted buying me the book. Eventually, Greg came back, we hugged it out, he sat down, I won the game, and I was master of the board. Not my finest hour, but we'll come back to that story in just a little bit. First, as Dugan said, we're in a series called Heartland Chapter 3, The Shift, where we're talking about the vision that God has given us for our church going forward. And in the first week of the series, I talked about the new vision statement, which is that every single one of us is doing something to advance God's kingdom. Two weeks ago, we unpacked the new uh, core values or the first new core value, which is simply that we are in this together. And then last week, we talked about our second core value, which is that we are here to serve. Today, we're going to look at our third core value. And let me just warn you up front, this is not Christianity light. I don't know what that is, but whatever that is, this is not it. This is going to be rewarding but challenging stuff. Easy to understand, difficult to actually live out. But this value was taught by Jesus in a number of places. Jesus came back to this being a value of his and a value that he wanted for his followers to to, uh, consider or to prioritize again and again and again. Ultimately, the passage that I landed on that I wanted us to look at today is from Luke chapter 12, and as we've been doing the last several weeks, I want to invite you to stand to your feet right now as we read today's passage, just in recognition of the privilege we have to read the Word of God and understand it in a way that it causes us or it allows us to live life better. And so this is what Jesus said, or this is what we read in Luke chapter 12. Beginning in verse 13, we read, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who has appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he turned to the crowd and he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus, again, kind of finishes the parable, turns to the crowd, and he says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, we want to say thank you for the privilege that it is to gather together in your presence. And Lord, when we come together, it's our desire that we would get to worship you and lift our minds and our thoughts to you and to things above, not things on this earth. And Lord, it's our desire that you would speak into our life as only you can. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that right now, that you would speak into a topic that every single one of us deals with on a daily basis. Lord, help us to get this part of our lives right, and would it be glorifying to you? It's in the name of Jesus that we come before you, and everyone who agreed with this prayer said, amen. Well, you can have a seat. The man in Jesus' parable was master of the board. He was clearly successful from a business standpoint. We're told that he worked in the agricultural industry and that he grew grain. It's implied that he's been at this for a while and that he's been successful for a while. We know that because he already has barns that are filled with surplus grain, but we're told that this year it was a bumper crop like no other, and this year the harvest is so huge that not only does he not need to dip into the savings that he has stored up in his barns to sell and to take to market, he can't sell everything he's harvested this year, and he's got so much left over after what he can sell this year, he doesn't have room to store it all. And so what does he decide to do? He decides to tear down his barns to build bigger ones, and now he'll be able to store all of his excess grain. He realizes how much excess he has, and he realizes he is good to go. He has crossed that imaginary finish line, and he can now coast to the end of his life financially in comfort. From a business standpoint, this was a great plan. He was clearly a wise manager of money, and yet God calls this man a fool. Why did God refer to this man as a fool? Why such disapproval from God? There is no mention of shady business practices. It doesn't seem like this man came to this wealth like in an immoral way. Jesus didn't say that he had crushed small farmers around him and put them out of business and now he has a monopoly and now he's you know, trying to manipulate the markets. So why did God refer to this man? Why did he say that this man was a fool? Well, what you do as you study scripture is you take passages like this and you look at all the other things that God reveals to us about money and then in light of those other passages, Jesus' statement that God looked at this man and thought of him as a fool becomes very clear why that was the case. The first thing that we know is that the man in the story was operating with the belief that he was in control. He believed that he was the source of his wealth. Look at this passage again, but pay attention to all of the personal pronouns. I'll try to hit these harder as I read it. But we read the, the story Jesus said that he, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, drink and be merry. In his mind, he had done a good job planning. 
He had done a good job of preparing his fields. He had done a good job of planting and tending to the crops as they grew. He had harvested at the right time. And as a result, he had generated a boatload of money. I created this wealth, he thought. It was all about him. Notice that there was no mention of God's provision. No mention of the nutrients in the soil that caused those seeds to break open and to germinate. There was no thought given to the rains that fell from an ecosystem controlled by God. No mention of the, the miracle of photosynthesis which allowed those little plants to take sunlight and convert it into energy and growth. There was no recognition of God's control or provision and that's part of the reason God said this man was foolish. The second reason that the man in Jesus' parable was a fool, because he was living with the assumption that what he did with money in this life would stay in this life. Just as he never thought about God, we also see that he never thinks about eternity. His mind is completely consumed with this lifetime. He looks at all of his grain and he says, look at all of the wealth I have in front of me right now. Look at all that I have amassed for myself. All of this will last me many more years here on earth. I'm going to start enjoying the benefits of this today. I'm going to eat the best foods. I'm going to drink the best drinks. We're talking top shelf baby and I'm going to be merry. Like this is going to be fun. I'm going to enjoy this today. There was absolutely no consideration given to what happens after this lifetime. There's no reflection on how what he does with his money in this lifetime might impact eternity for him. It's like the lie that says what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. He thought what happens with money in this life stays in this life. And to that, God says, you fool. He was also a fool because not only did he have no thought of God or no thought of eternity, but we also see in the story that there is no thought of any other people. This, this is shocking that there's no mention of other people at all. There's, first of all, no mention of the people who helped him get where he was. There's no mention of the people who helped him get the land that he used to grow the grain. There's no mention of the people who helped him plant the seeds, care for the crops, pull the weeds, harvest the grain, or transport his product to market. I don't know if you've ever been to a large-scale farming operation, but I have, and I'll tell you what I did not see. I did not see a one-man show. Farming is a very high labor-intensive job, so no doubt this man had help over the years. But there's no mention of the others who helped him get where he was. There's no mention of other people who had helped him get rich, and there's no mention of the people around him in need. There's no mention of the poor. There's no mention of the hungry, of the thirsty, of the naked. There's no mention of the unemployed or the underemployed. He has no concern for the elderly man who has to choose between buying his medication and food. There's no thought for the single mom who's working two jobs but still struggles to put her growing teenage boys in clothes that fit and fed well. 
There's no thought to the young woman who prostitutes herself because of the trauma she experienced and the lack of education she received and the lack of viable vocational options available to her, at least in her mind. This man was only concerned with himself and his comfort and what his money could provide for him today. And for that, God's judgment was appropriately sharp in condemning, you fool. This man was a fool because he had no thought of God, no thought of eternity, and when it came to his money, no thought of other people. And sadly, the same could be said for the vast majority of people today. We live in a world that teaches us to be exactly like the man in this story. We live in a world that lifts the man in this story up as like a role model for us of all things. The world bombards us with messages that tell us that we are the source of our wealth, that you are the ruler of your domain, that you have the power to generate unbelievable wealth. It is all in your hands. The world tells us to only think of today. The world has no use for eternity. Carpe diem, seize the day. YOLO, you only live once. And the world trains us to look past people in need. The government has programs that will provide for them. If you try to help the poor, they'll probably just try to take advantage of you. They're not your concern. Don't worry about them. These are the messages that the world screams at us every day. But this is not who we were created to be. And I believe that deep down, this is not who we want to be. We as followers of Jesus don't want to live lives like everyone else around us who are living without the promises of God. We don't want to live lives where we feel like we have to fight to get ours and then we have to fight to keep ours and we have to fight to look out for ourselves and ours first to guard against everybody else that it's us and them. No, that's not the abundant life that Jesus promised to his followers. God wants so much more for us than that. And what we have to understand is that when it comes to our money, God doesn't want more from us. He wants more for us. And so Jesus offers us an alternative. In the words of this parable, it is the opportunity to be, quote, rich toward God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be rich towards God? Well, again, As we look at all of these other passages of Scripture where Jesus taught about money, it becomes very clear what it means to be rich towards God. And not surprisingly, it's almost the exact opposite of the man in Jesus' parable. The first step that we find to becoming rich towards God is to understand that ultimately all of it belongs to him. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world, and all who live in it. Psalm 50 says, I do not need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens for all the animals of the forest are mine, mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything we can see and touch, everything we can buy and enjoy, it was all created by him, and ultimately it all belongs to him. We may have it in our hands for a little while, but but at the end of our day, our time with it is temporary, and it's temporary because ultimately it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. 
Once we understand that, once we understand who the true owner of it is, it then leads us to the understanding that we are stewards of it for a season. Several times over the course of his ministry, Jesus told the story of a wealthy landowner who went away for a season. And while he was gone, he left his wealth in the hands of his servants. And when he returned, there was an accounting. And we're told that the wealthy landowner either rewarded or punished his servants for how they managed his money while he was gone. And Jesus' point is always the same. His point is that it, is this, it will be the same for you and me that we are managing God's money temporarily. Now, I want to be clear that, it's, that the man in Jesus' parable was not condemned simply for being wealthy. Okay, this is very important to understand about God and money and us. It is not a sin to be rich. I hope all of us, myself included, become rich, Right? This is not a sin. It's not wrong to have a lot of money. Wealth is never condemned in Scripture. In fact, some of the most godly women and men in the Bible were incredibly rich. Abraham, Esther, Job, David, Saul, Solomon, all of them were incredibly wealthy and very godly. And over the years, I have known some fantastic God-honoring Christians who were rich as well and who leveraged their wealth for the kingdom of God. Their giving moves the needle, and it is a beautiful thing to see. The difference between them and the man in Jesus' parable is their perspective. They understand that they have been entrusted with a lot and that their stewardship of it matters a lot. So being rich towards God begins by understanding, first of all, that it all belongs to him, that we are managing it on his behalf temporarily, and then you add to that the understanding that what we do with money in this lifetime has very real, concrete implications for us in eternity. Again, Jesus taught this concept out many, many times. Maybe the very most clear was in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, where Jesus said, this is so blatant. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. But here it is. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. That is a wild thought, isn't it? To know that we are invited by the God of the universe to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven, treasure that will last for all of eternity. When we remember that, it makes you reconsider some of our purchases that we make. When we remember, man, I could spend this on myself now, or I could send it ahead and enjoy it for all of eternity. And what happens when we remember the opportunity we have to do that is that it frees us up to do the number one thing that God calls us to do with money, and that is to simply give. More than any other thing that Jesus said to do with money, he repeatedly came back to the calling to simply give it away. Why does the number one thing that Jesus had to say about money have to be the hardest why couldn't he have said save it or invest it or, you know, like put it in a mason jar in the backyard? I don't know. Why did he have to say give it away? I don't know, but that's what he did so clearly. Look at just passages even like Luke 6, 38, where Jesus simply says give and it will be given to you. 
over and over and over again, we are called to give, to live lives of generosity. We are called to be like God who at heart is a giver. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, says that because God so loved the world that he what? That he gave, yes. Because God loves, God gives. And we are never more like God than when we are giving. We are called to give and to be generous, but, to no, but notice that the call to give is also frequently combined with the promise of blessing. Look at the rest of Luke 6, 38. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What does that mean? With the measure that we use, it will be measured to us. Well, think of like, the best analogy I could give you is like when you're baking chocolate chip cookies. Anybody else love chocolate chip cookies? Yes, everybody, clearly. Okay, so when you're baking chocolate chip cookies, you're following the recipe. Let's say that it calls for like one cup of brown sugar, right? You can scoop a cup of brown sugar out of the bag in a way that it's kind of loose and there's a lot of air in there. Or you can do what I do, which is pack that brown sugar down really tight so you get even more sugar in the cup, right? Well, this is what Jesus says. This is the analogy that Jesus is using. He's saying the measure that you use is the same measure that God will use when he rewards your generosity. This is a, a wild concept. This is so Interesting that Jesus literally ties our level of blessing with our level of obedience and faith. He says, if you want to give miserly, that's totally fine. It's up to you. God will reward you miserly. You want to give generously? Amen to that. God will reward you generously. And so we want to be people who understand this. We want to be people who remember this. We want to live this out. We want to live lives of generosity. It feels good when we get this right. When you, when you help someone in need, when you're a part of something bigger than yourself, when you invest in what God is doing in our world, there is a part of us that comes alive because this is who we were created to be. And so deep down, I believe that we want to be generous people. We want to give abundantly and we want to see what God will do with that investment. And that's why our third core value is that we are crazy generous. We follow a God who is crazy generous, and we want to be people who reflect God's generosity to the world around us. Now, when I say crazy, I don't mean in a way that is like irresponsible, okay? I'm not saying that we should all sell everything and just give it away and just sit here at church until Jesus returns. That's not what I'm saying, okay? But one of the main definitions of generous, I love this, is, quote, extremely enthusiastic. And that's definitely the type of generous that we want to be. We want to be extremely enthusiastic when it comes to our generosity. We want to be people who understand that everything we have ultimately is God's that he has entrusted it to us temporarily and that we get to manage it. We get to steward it on his behalf. We want to be people who understand that what we do with it in this lifetime has eternal implications and we want to understand that it is better to give than to receive, that God rewards us for living a life of generosity. The Apostle Paul one time said that God loves, quote, a cheerful giver. And if God loves a cheerful giver, 
I'm just betting that he must really love an extremely enthusiastic giver. And what's so awesome is that so many of you already are. For the last 14 years, I have had a front row seat to see the incredible generosity of so many in our church family. I have watched as you have made sacrifices, you have given up opportunities that were available to you so that you could be rich towards God. It has been inspiring to me, and as a result, it has allowed us as a, as a church whole, as a church body, it has allowed us to be generous as well. This is one of the things that you know, I think we might need to do a better job of in chapter three, which is simply talking about and celebrating all of that celebrating what God does through us collectively because of our individual generosity. It's a tricky balance that for the last 14 years, on one hand, I've never wanted anybody to feel like we are patting ourselves on the back. But on the other hand, I think that what, what God gets to do through our collective generosity deserves to be talked about. It deserves to be celebrated. It deserves to be highlighted. And so I think going forward in chapter three, we want to do an even better job of celebrating what God does through our collective generosity because he is doing amazing things. So many things that you probably aren't even aware of. I just was thinking about this the other day, and I was like, man, I bet most people in our church don't even know about the 50,000 meals that we sent to Haiti after the earthquake. I bet most of you don't know about the retreat that we paid to send minority pastors from Dane County on at the end of last year after the 2020 that they had. You might not know about the church plant that we are currently funding in Belgium or the missionaries in Iraq that we support every month or the YWAM staffers that pour into teenagers in our community. Some of you are hearing that and you're like, what, really, we do all of that right now? Yes, we do all of that and so much more. And it's all possible because so many of you are already crazy generous, and it is a beautiful thing. It's like the young boy who came to Jesus with his five loaves and his two fish. Some of you, you bring your fish, and I bring my fish, and others of you bring your bread, and we combine it together, and we offer it to Jesus, and we say, here, Jesus, take it and use it. Do whatever you want with it. And Jesus receives it from us, and he blesses it, and he multiplies it, and then it gets released in our community to do things that we could never do on our own. It is a glorious process that is glorifying to God and thrilling to be a part of. And I want to invite you to be part of it as we enter into chapter three. Somebody asked me the other day how the church is doing right now financially in light of COVID, right? Maybe you've wondered that yourself. We were online only for the better part of nine months. How's the church doing today financially? Well, I'll tell you, we're doing okay, but not great. Certainly not as well as we were pre-COVID, comes down to the fact that both attendance and giving are down here and really in churches across the country. Actually, both giving and attendance are down less here than they are uh, in relation to like the national average. We're doing better than, than most that way. It's the simple reality that over the course of the 12 months that followed COVID, many people who previously came to church got out of the habit. They created new routines and they're not coming back to church yet. Many of those people only gave financially when they were in church in person, and so their giving has dried up. That's gone away as well. For us, one of the very interesting things about it is that our giving is only down about half what our attendance is down. 
And that's actually a great sign. It points to a couple of things. Number one, it points to the fact that some of you who are joining us online every week are giving electronically, so thank you for doing that. Like our attendance is down more than our giving is down because you're still giving. And it's also a reflection of the fact that many of you who are back in person recognize the value of church more than you've ever recognized it before. And so for many of you, your giving has gone up. And so because of that, our giving is only down half what our attendance is down. As always, the elders who oversee our budget manage this very, very cautiously, very wisely. Every single dollar that comes in is stewarded wisely. We have made cuts, and if we need to cut back more, we will, but so far we haven't had to because leading up to COVID, we were preparing and saving in case a rainy day came along. Well, a rainy day arrived, and it's still here. But let me tell you about our elders. Let me tell you about our very last elder meeting last month, several weeks ago. Our treasurer had given the elder update, and he had gone over all the specifics of it, and all of us as elders were kind of you know, processing and asking questions and had a good conversation about it. We're looking at the numbers in front of us, and I felt this nudge in my spirit. And it was the kind of nudge that I thought, yeah, that must be a bad taco or something that I ate earlier. You know, I don't think that was God. Like, if I say what I'm thinking, the elders are going to run me out of here. You know what, that kind of nudge, you know what I'm talking about, but then it doesn't go away, and you're like, okay, I feel like maybe it is not just a bad, I did eat some bad tacos, but it was like, maybe it's more than that. And so I said, all right, elders, let me just throw this out there. I said, I think that we have been a generous church for the last 14 years, but I think we've actually gotten comfortable being a generous church, and I think it might be time for us to take our generosity up a notch, because I believe that God might be calling us to be crazy generous, not just as individuals in the church, but as a church as a whole. I said that, and then I looked around to see who would chastise me for saying something so dumb. But to a person, every single one of them said, I agree. They said, of course, of course, if we believe that ultimately it's all God's anyway, and if we believe God is the one who provides for us, and if we believe that we're stewarding it, managing it on his behalf, and if we believe that what we do with it has eternal ramifications, and if we believe that God will provide for us and bless us for our generosity, then yes, of course, let's become more generous. And again, they were, nobody was saying that we would do anything irresponsible, right? Nobody's going to become flippant with the church finances. We will always steward it incredibly wisely, but I believe that God is inviting us to be even more generous than we have been in the past. And again, I want to invite you to be part of it all. I want to invite you to take a next step in your generosity, to remember that God wants to bless you as a result. In fact, look at what God said to the Israelites one time about their generosity. This is how serious God is about blessing us when we trust him with our finances. He said to them, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. Like I said earlier, clearly God does not want anything from us when it comes to our money. He wants something for us, and the key to unlocking it is our generosity. So I want to invite you to take a next step in your generosity.
No matter where you are, no matter where you are in the spectrum of generosity, I want to invite you to take a next step. Maybe you're a sporadic giver. You give occasionally when you feel inspired in the moment to give. If that's you, I want to invite you. I want to encourage you to become a consistent giver. To say, you know what? I'm going to pre-decide. I'm going to give X amount every, every week, every two weeks when I get paid, every month. I'm just going to give a set dollar amount every single month, and I'm going to be a consistent giver that way. If you're already doing that, I want to invite you to become a percentage giver, to say, not just I'm going to give a certain dollar amount, but I want to give a specific percentage, right? Maybe you're like me, and you were brought up to, to, to give a tithe, right? I was brought up to give 10% off of the top before I do anything else with my paycheck. That 10% goes to the church, and then I can give above and beyond that in the form of offerings to other churches and organizations and ministries, but I give God 10%. I put 10% in the storehouse right off the top. If you're a consistent giver, maybe it's time to become a percentage giver, you don't have to jump all the way to a tithe, but maybe it's 5%. Maybe it's 6%. Just pick a percentage and become a percentage giver. And if you're already a percentage giver, maybe it's time for you to start considering what it looks like to be a legacy giver. Somebody whose financial legacy is tied up in what you did with the kind of the bulk of your finances at the end of your life. No matter who you are, taking a next step in your generosity will be scary. I can promise you that. It is never easy to become more generous. But the anecdote to that fear is to just do it and to see that God really will still provide for you. I think a passage that comes to mind is 1 Timothy 6, where the Apostle Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy. And this is what he said to Timothy because Timothy was pastoring a community of people he said, Timothy, I want, you to, I, I, I want you to command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Years ago, I heard Pastor Andy Stanley teach a mantra based on this passage that said, I will not trust in riches but in him who richly provides. Isn't that so good? I will not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. After all these years, I've never forgotten that. I don't think I ever will because it's so true and it reflects who I want to be. I want to be somebody who does not trust in riches, but in him who richly provides. And I want to invite you to remember it as well. Because when our trust is where it should be, it frees us up to be crazy generous. All those years ago when I played the game of Monopoly and I finally won and became master of the board, I then learned very quickly that the feeling doesn't last very long because as soon as you're done playing, you have to pack it all up because it all goes back in the box. And what was true with the game of Monopoly and the Monopoly board is also true for all of us at the end of our lives as well. At the end of the day, and there will be an end to our days, it all gets packed up, and it all goes back in the box. So instead of spending our lives trying to become master of the board, what do you say we become crazy generous, and we see what God will do in our midst and through us as a result? Let me pray for you. 
Lord, thank you. Thank you that our faith is not shallow or surface level. Thank you that you spoke into the greatest topics of concern in our lives today. Lord, our finances is certainly near the top of the list. Lord, what you've said and taught about money is clear. It's easy to understand, but it is difficult to live out. Will you help us? Lord, in our weakness, will you be our source of strength? Will you give us faith and courage and trust to live lives of crazy generosity, watching what you do as a result? It's in your son's name that we pray, and everyone who agreed said amen. All right, everybody, on your way out, don't forget, you can drop your offering in the baskets. We'll see you next week for Value 4. See you then.